We are looking at Mark 6, 1 through 6, as we just kind of slowly continue our way through Mark's gospel. Uh, when you get there, and stand with me for the reading of God's holy and precious word, as we learn about Jesus' rejection there in his hometown of Nazareth. Let's listen with reverence, let's listen with joy. Because this is the word of our God coming to us through Mark, inspired by the Holy Spirit. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. And Father, I I love the way Marilyn Robinson defined preaching as as parsing the broken heart of your people and praising the loving heart of Jesus Christ. And so we pray that this morning as we open this text and explain this text and proclaim this text and apply this text, that your people's hearts would be accessed at its brokenness, at its sorrow, that its sin would be parsed and have the healing balm of Jesus Christ applied to it, that his loving heart would be praised and thus seen and enjoyed and loved this morning by your people. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, rejection is one of the most emotionally painful experiences a person can face. And it's also pretty much universal, isn't it? You and everyone you know has experienced or will experience the the pain of rejection at some point, on some scale, by someone... But it, it, it especially hurts when it's with people who ought to know you best, isn't it? In one of my favorite books on pastoral ministry, the author uh, recalls a conversation he once had with a young man who desired to become a pastor. And this young man, still wet behind the ears, so to speak, he was uh, zealous, optimistic, perhaps a little naive about pastoral ministry, And they were getting dinner at a local Thai restaurant one night, and the young man said to the author, he's an older pastor, he said, no matter what, I want to go all out for ministry. I just want to preach the word. 
No matter what happens, as long as I keep saying what God has said, He will bless it. I know that God has given me this purpose. And the author said that there was an, an urgency in his voice and hurry in his eyes. And, and as older, more mature pastors, I've noticed, are often apt to do, he just took some time to silently think and pray about his response. And he was there kind of twirling his noodles in his bowl with his chopsticks. And finally, he responds, yes, God will bless his word. God has given you a purpose that's true. And he thought and prayed some more as he lingered over his bowl of noodles and sipped his Coke. And after a bit, he said, I once spoke at a conference. I preached five times. It was one of those moments when God's presence was tangibly felt. In fact, after that particular conference, the rest of my year was planned full with preaching all over the country. God does bless his word. I've seen him do it firsthand. But, he went on, on my way home after that last sermon, amid the divine blessing of that night, my wife of 15 years called me to tell me that she wouldn't be there when I got home, that she was leaving me and our children. And I thought of that story as I read this passage this week because what we've been seeing over the last few chapters of Mark has been remarkable, hasn't it? We've seen God powerfully at work, tangibly demonstrating the arrival of His kingdom. We have seen storms stilled. We have seen spiritual evil vanquished. We have seen bodies healed. We have even seen the dead raised. And and you know, if you're the disciples, you're probably thinking, I could get used to this. Right? This is... This is nice. We're going from victory to victory here, from strength to strength here. Nothing can stop this train. God is blessing this thing, and he was. And yet then Jesus goes home to his hometown of Nazareth, and it's, it's there of all places that he faces the pain of rejection even amidst the divine blessing on his ministry. And the place where rejection can feel most painful, Jesus was rejected. Just like you have been, just like I have been, just like we all have been, Jesus was rejected rejected. And that's sort of the point of this passage here in Mark, is to show us that Jesus was rejected. And verse 1 tells us that Jesus went away from there and he came to his hometown. Now, we don't know exactly where there was, but it was likely Capernaum. Capernaum was Jesus' kind of home base of operations at this point. It seems that he was probably living with Peter's family there in Capernaum, but his hometown The place he grew up was actually Nazareth, as you might know. And this word translated as as hometown here literally means like fatherland. It was the place that his father and family raised him. And so he comes to Nazareth, which was at the time a small community of perhaps about just a few hundred people where people know one another, they're familiar with one another. And then Mark wants us to see that, that his disciples followed him, it says. And this is important to point out because in the, in the passage immediately following ours, Jesus will send his disciples out for the purpose of mission and ministry in Israel, and he gives them this, these specific instructions for the mission and ministry, and included in those instructions were specific instructions for what they ought to do when they face rejection. And so you can easily see here, That Jesus is preparing them, showing them, reminding them that they will indeed face rejection. 
It's not all fantastic miracles and fruitful mission. Being involved in this kingdom also involves the rejection and reprehension from others. And Jesus wants his disciples to know that. So they come with him to witness his rejection there in Nazareth. And then verse 2 tells us that while there on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And it's, it's an interesting detail because it shows us that when Jesus arrives in Nazareth, the crowds don't come out and kind of throng about him like we've seen them do in other places in Mark. When he comes to his hometown, the crowds don't, don't come out to see him, to hear him teach, to be on the receiving end of his miracles. When he comes to Nazareth, he's got to wait until the Sabbath for everyone to be gathered together and hear him teach. So that's our kind of first sign that he's receiving something of a different kind of reaction or, or reception or lack of reception than he has elsewhere here in Nazareth. And so there at the synagogue, as he taught on the Sabbath, those gathered respond in the surprising way. Mark says in, in verse 3 that many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did, these, where did this man get these things, right? What is this wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? So evidently, Jesus got up to teach, and he taught with such clarity, such authority, such wisdom, such skill. He taught in a way that you just don't hear anywhere else, and this surprises hearers. They're going, where did, where did he get this, this wisdom, this power? And of course, we, we've seen all the way up to this point in Mark's gospel, we, we know the answer to this question, particularly chapters 4 and chapter 5, show us the, di- the divinity and identity of Jesus as the Messiah and Son of God. And so we know, where did he get this wisdom? Well, Isaiah 9, he's the wonderful counselor. Where did he get this 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 mighty power. Well, Isaiah 9 tells us he's the mighty God. We know who he is. That's where his wisdom and might come from. he's, He's God come to us in the flesh. But then they are so blind to this, perhaps partly just due to their familiarity with him. They say in verse 3, is this not the carpenter? Right? So that would have been Jesus's vocation, the vocation uh, that, that he worked up until the beginning of his ministry there in Israel, the vocation that he received from his adoptive earthly father, Joseph, who is obviously absent in this passage. You might have noticed that. He probably died by this point in Jesus' life. But he would have raised Jesus to be a carpenter like himself, which would have been normal in, in Jewish culture in, in those days. It was commonly said that every father has you know, kind of four responsibilities toward their sons, circumcise them, teach them Torah, teach them your trade, and find them a wife. That was their responsibility. And evidently, Joseph taught Jesus his trade. And so those gathered at the synagogue are going, you know, he's, he's been trained as a carpenter, not as a rabbi. He hasn't gone to seminary. Right? Where, where's, where's he getting this wisdom, this authority? Where's he getting this stuff? And moreover, they use their familiarity with Jesus' family to dismiss him. And say, isn't, isn't he the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? They seek to dismiss him on account of his familial origin. They, they call him the son of Mary, which would not have been normal in the first century Jewish setting that we find here. That, that would have been what they call a patrilineal culture. 
So they would have attributed someone's identity to who their father was. They ordinarily would have said he's the son of Joseph, not the son of Mary. They would have normally associated a person with their father, but here they associate Jesus with his mother, Mary, showing us at least that Joseph is no longer around. But it seems to indicate more than that. Scholars believe that referring to Jesus here as the son of Mary was actually casting something of a stigma on Mary and on Jesus, as it was likely uh, their way of, of slanderously raising doubts uh, about his legitimacy here. This was a way of questioning his legitimacy as uh, uh, the, the son of his parents. In other words, here they're, they're slandering him. But then they also mentioned his brothers and sisters too. Perhaps their family was not Viewed with a great deal of respect in the area, it seems in Luke's gospel when it tells about the sacrifice that, that Mary brought after she gave birth, that this family didn't have much money. They weren't well off. They weren't well to do. And so likely not highly regarded in that community. And so Jesus, along with them to this community, is not to be highly regarded. And so they use all of this to kind of dismiss and reject Jesus here. They're saying, you know, hey, Hey, Sally, you babysat this kid when he was growing up. You changed his diapers. You know anything about this Messiah stuff, right? No, I didn't think so. Jim, Jim, you coached his football team. You know his family. They're not great. They're not significant, are they? Who is this guy? He must be confused. Where did he get this teaching from? They're so familiar with him and his family, and they, they, they reject his, his dignity and identity as the Son of God on the basis of who his family is, so they can't see him for what he truly is. They take offense at him, it says. They're offended at the idea that this man with such humble and familiar origins is the one through whom God is inaugurating his kingdom. His and his family status, evidently in their view, doesn't warrant such dignity. And so rightly did the, did the prophet Isaiah prophesy that, that Christ would be despised and rejected by men. Jesus here is despised and rejected in his very own hometown by his very own people. And so blatantly so. Sinclair Ferguson, he, he says about this passage that, you know, Jesus had, had suffered the subtle attacks of the Pharisees with their contorted theological arguments. Here in Nazareth, the abuse had no subtle nuances. It was open, brazen rejection. They resented and despised him. They could not tolerate one who had come from among them and yet was so different from them. And in response to this rejection, Jesus says in verse 4, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. Obviously, we've seen this in Mark. Jesus is more than a prophet. He'll state clearly later in Mark that he's more than a prophet. But here we, we, we see him suffer the same fate as the prophets, don't we? And of course, our, our theological tribe tends not to read the prophets as much, unfortunately. But when we read them, we see the prophets face horrendous rejection even among their own people, being maligned, slandered, beaten, arrested, killed even. You find in Hebrews eleven thirty-five to 37, just a, a summary of what the prophets went through. It says some were tortured, others suffered mocking and flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword, they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. 
Jesus here faces the same sort of resentment, the same sort of reprehension, the same sort of rejection from his own people and his own hometown, even even from his own relatives, as we've seen in Mark already, even amongst members of his own household. And so verse 5 tells us that in response to this unbelief, he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. Now, as I read that, some of you might have internal flashing red lights going off in your brain, right? What did that say? He could not do something? He's God. I thought he could do anything. And yet it says here, he could do no mighty work there. And, And you know, some have even used this passage, this exact passage, to teach that Jesus was not able to do mighty things there because of unbelief. Some have said that Jesus was, quote, trapped by the unbelief of these people, unquote. That his power was limited because of their unbelief. Now, we know that can't be true because elsewhere, Jesus, we find Jesus doing mighty things, even in the face of unbelief, right? We've, we just saw in uh, just chapter 4 of Mark's gospel here, the stilling of the storm. And what did Jesus say after the storm calmed? He said, do you still not have any faith? And so evidently, the, the disciples' lack of faith did not limit that miracle did not limit Jesus's power to perform that miracle. The same could be said of uh, Mark 5, 1 through 20, the the demoniac man. Do you think that that man was putting his faith in Christ when Christ casted demons out of him? I don't think so. And so I would be careful before jumping to any conclusions about Jesus's power being limited by us and, and him being trapped by our unbelief as human beings. And in fact, we should understand that this this Greek phrase here, translated as saying that Jesus could do no mighty work there, is this kind of idiomatic expression that means in plenty of places that someone could do something but would not do something even though they were capable. Consider Luke 14.20 for a moment. It's the parable of the wedding feast where the kingdom of God is illustrated as a wedding feast that many guests are invited to, but many decline the invitation. In Luke 14, 20, we find a man invited to the wedding feast, and he says, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. And it's actually the same exact words as our text is using here. And did that mean that the man was literally unable to come? Well, the apparent meaning of the passage shows us that he was actually able, but he chose not to attend. He could, but he would not attend. We find the same thing in Luke eleven seven, In a parable about prayer, there's a man whose neighbor uh, uh, comes to him to ask for bread in the middle of the night. The man is certainly able to get up and get his neighbor some bread, but he says, it's the middle of the night, don't bother me, the door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed, I cannot get up and give you anything. Again, it's the same language used in our text here. And again, it does not literally mean that the man is unable. It means that he's just choosing not to. In the same way, here in Mark 6, 5, Jesus is able to do mighty works even in the face of unbelief, but he's choosing not to as a way of honoring their rejection of him. And this is clearly evidenced by his departure in verse 6. It says, and he marveled because of their unbelief, and he went about among the villages teaching, right? So he, he left Nazareth. This is a sign of his honoring their choice to rejection, reject him, like he tells his disciples in Mark 6, 11. 
He says there, and if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. That's what he's doing here. He's saying, if you won't receive me, I won't stick around to to teach and do miracles. I'll go elsewhere. I will honor your rejection of me. And that's what he does. Not because their unbelief limited him, but because faith is the condition and instrument through which God has ordinarily chosen to work in this world. And Jesus does not meet faith here. He meets rejection. Jesus was rejected. Now, so what? So what, right? So Jesus was rejected. That's what we find here. That's the sort of big idea of this passage. That's what the passage says. So what? What what difference does Jesus' rejection make for us today? I just want to look at three brief points with you. First, we find that Jesus' rejection cautions us. It cautions us. Maybe that's not a strong enough word, actually. Uh, Maybe we should say Jesus' rejection warns us. It warns us against unbelief. But warn doesn't start with a C, and I need a word that starts with a C. So it cautions us, right? It cautions us. Jesus' rejection cautions us against unbelief. Again, unbelief doesn't hold him back, but it can hold us back from receiving what he wants to give us. St. Augustine once said that God is always trying to give us good things, but our hands are too full to receive them. And our hands are too full to receive God's good gifts when there's unbelief in our hearts. And J.C. Ryle likewise once said about this passage that it shows us that unbelief has the power to rob men of the highest blessings. And indeed, in absolute and total unbelief in the Lord Jesus Christ robs us of everything. It robs us of salvation, of forgiveness, of redemption, of future glory. If you're here this morning and you don't trust in Christ as your Savior and friend and Lord and Master, you are robbing yourself of the highest blessing and gift that heaven has offered. You are robbing yourself of far more than merely witnessing miracles like these people in Nazareth. You are robbing yourself of full salvation in Christ. You are robbing yourself of your guilt drowned in the blood of Christ. You're robbing yourself of your conscience being cleansed by the blood of Christ. You're you're, you're robbing yourself of your shame being covered by the righteousness of Christ. You're robbing yourself of eternal life bought for you by the cross of Christ and secured by his resurrection. You're robbing yourself of the unshakable comfort that we have in the face of suffering, from confidence in your future destiny, from courage, even in the face of death. You're robbing yourself. Most importantly, you're robbing yourself from the joy of having and knowing and possessing Christ. The one who made you for himself and who is there for your home and your comfort in this life and in eternity. You're robbing yourself of all this and more. If you don't trust in Christ at all, but even for those of us who do trust in Christ, there are still still vestiges of unbelief that rob us of blessings, of, of comfort and joy and peace and answered prayer in this life. There's Charles Spurgeon. He's got a wonderful sermon on this that I commend to your reading this this Sunday. It's, It's on this passage, and he spends half of his sermon 
addressing what he calls amazing forms of unbelief that are found among the professed people of God. And we saw this last week. We, we, we saw that there are still, even those of us who are in the faith, that we're still a messed mix of, 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 of unbelief and belief, of faith and doubt. And with that, we possess salvation in Christ. Even with weak faith, we are still saved by the same strong Christ. But that doesn't mean that weak faith and these vestiges of unbelief don't rob us from blessings in the Christian life. Weak faith still often leads to, it can lead to a lack of assurance in our hearts. A lack of confidence that we are truly, indeed, forgiven, not guilty, declared righteous, even while we are. Weak faith can rob us, not of forgiveness, but it can rob us of our feeling our forgiveness. It can can rob us of, of, of the sweet blessings of felt redemption at times. Not only that, but these these vestiges of unbelief can often rob us from from running to God in prayer with our requests and desires and petitions in life. And thus we, we don't experience the joy and blessing of answered prayer, receiving our requests and desires and seeing God work in mighty and wonderful and miraculous ways. James 4, 2 tells us, you do not have because you do not ask. Well, why do we not ask? We don't ask because of unbelief, because of these vestiges of unbelief still in our hearts. And there are more examples that we can give, but but do you see how unbelief can rob us of blessing? Do we see how we're cautioned here and warned here against unbelief? When I read this passage, I I can't help but ask, what am I missing out on on account of uh, my own unbelief still left in my heart? What kind of growth? What kind of joy, what kind of answers to prayer, what kind of fruit in ministry, what am I missing out on, on account of unbelief still left in my heart? Perhaps it's a question you might ask and and consider this week. And of course, you know, I I would say don't, don't stay there considering and asking this question longer than necessary. So I'm often apt to say and quote Robert Murray McShane. He once said that, you know, for every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. Yes, we're, we're biblically called to self-examination at times, and so we ought to do it. We ought to ask ourselves where there's unbelief still left in our hearts and how that might be costing us joy and blessing in the Christian life. But after sufficiently considering that question, take your eyes off yourself and put them on Jesus. Take those vestiges of unbelief that you find in yourself and run to Jesus with them and just ask him, I believe, but won't you help my unbelief? If you do, friends, he he will blow upon those those embers of faith in your heart and and blow them into flickering flames. He is, as Hebrews 12 tells us, the author and perfecter of our faith. Is the object of our imperfect faith. He is the means of it growing and strengthening and enduring and abiding. So look to him, run to him, even with your unbelief still left in your heart. And next, it not only cautions us, it also comforts us. You know, again, as I said earlier, there's, there's no human being who has ever lived in this world who's never felt the sting of rejection. 
You and everyone you know has experienced or will experience rejection, rejection by former friends, family members, co-workers, neighbors. We've all been rejected over disagreements or misrepresentations of our character or what have you. And what's more is that for us as Christians, it can, it can happen on account of our faith sometimes. Perhaps you've experienced rejection. Because of your faith, because you're, you're standing firmly on your convictions as a follower of Christ. Perhaps you've been rejected because you hold to the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. Or your convictions regarding the Bible's teaching on sexuality or because you've tried to operate with integrity at work when just going with the flow would have kept you out of trouble. Rejection happens to us and it happens to us as Christians as well. And it hurts. It can be so isolating. It can be so lonely to go through that. And you can, you can just quickly go to that place where you feel like you're all alone in your rejection. Because of that, one of the most healing experiences you can find, one of the most comforting experiences you can find after facing rejection is simply telling your story to someone else who listens with a sympathetic ear. But you know what's more is that because Christ stepped into human flesh, and experienced the rejection of this world because he felt the sting of rejection, because he felt the pain of rejection here in Nazareth and among his own people, you have a friend in heaven who bends his ear towards you and sympathizes with your experiences of rejection. Although he's God and though in eternity past he knew nothing but the pleasures and perfections and praises of heaven. He stepped into our world and into our humanity and into our experience. And he therefore knows then what it is to be rejected and despised as a man. Because of that, Hebrews 4.15 tells us that we don't have a high priest in heaven. We don't have a friend in, in heaven who's unable to sympathize with us, but one who has been tempted and tried like we are in every respect and yet without sin. You understand what that means? That means that you have the sympathy and solidarity of the eternal Son of God, even in the face of others' rejection of you. Dane Ortland, he's this great book called Gentle and Lowly. He talks about it, he puts it this way, he says, When the relationship goes sour, when the feelings of futility come flooding in, when we can't sort out our emotions... When the longtime friend lets you down, when a family member betrays us, when we feel deeply misunderstood, when we are laughed at by the impressive, in short, when the fallenness of this world closes in on us and makes us want to throw in the towel, there, right there, we have a friend who knows exactly what such testing feels like and sits close to us, embraces us, with us, solidarity. Our tendency is to feel intuitively that the more difficult life gets, the more alone we are. As we sink further into our pain, we sink further into felt isolation, the Bible corrects us. Our pain never outstrips what he himself shares in. We are never alone. That sorrow that feels so isolating, so unique, was endured by him in the past and is now shouldered by him in the present. 
Friends, he was, he was rejected just as you have been, just as I have been, and so he sympathizes with us. He is with us in it. And he therefore invites us to cast our sorrows and cares upon his strong, broad shoulders. He's more than capable of handling it. And he is overwhelmingly willing to handle it because he himself already faced it. He knows what it's like. So his rejection comforts us. And then lastly, it also calms us. It calms us. I don't know if you've noticed this yet in Mark's gospel, but Mark is continually keeping the cross in his sights in each and every chapter so far. We've seen this. It's a great book by Peter Bolt called The Cross from a Distance. And it's a book wherein he, he takes a look at the doctrine of atonement in Mark's gospel. And one of the things that Bolt points out so well is that Mark is continually foreshadowing in every chapter what will come in the final chapters of the book. And one of the ways that Bolt points out that Mark does this is in his revisiting the fact that Jesus is rejected by others in Israel and here in Nazareth, and he continually faces this rejection throughout. And, and what it's foreshadowing and hinting to the reader is that this rejection is building and gaining momentum. And it is going to culminate in the ultimate and final rejection of Jesus and his crucifixion and execution. Mark is foreshadowing for us here the cross where Jesus will be finally and ultimately rejected by men. And there, he, he won't just be slandered and slighted by his people, but scorned and slain by his people. There, he will be betrayed by one of his own and abandoned by the rest. There, he will be rejected by the high priest and his council and handed over to Pontius Pilate. There, he will be beaten, flogged, mocked. He will be crowned with thorns and have nails driven through his hands and feet. He will be hung on a cross, despised and rejected by men, as Isaiah told us. And of course, you just have to ask the question, why? Why would he do that? Why would he put himself through that? Why would he allow that to happen? The, the pain, the horrors, the, the torture, why would he die like this for us? And here's the good news in this looming rejection of Jesus, is that Jesus' rejection on the cross by man means our full acceptance by God. It means our full acceptance, not by our fellow human beings or in the court of human opinion, but in the throne room of heaven, the throne room of God, where it really, ultimately, eternally matters. And it means our acceptance there because in being rejected on the cross, Jesus took the full judgment of God that we deserve because of our sin. There on the cross, Jesus became sin so that we would become the righteousness of God, so that we would be declared righteous as He is truly righteous, so that His perfection would be counted toward us. And because His perfection is counted toward us, when we trust in Him, the courts of heaven say over you and over me, never rejected, always accepted. Never rejected, always accepted. Because of that, we can know for sure 
That although we might be rejected and despised by our acquaintances, our co-workers, our neighbors, our fellow Christians, even our own families, even with all of that, we can know for certain that Christ will never reject us. His cross guarantees it. He, the one who knows us at our worst, the one who, who sees the darkest and most vile thoughts of our hearts, he who knows every sin of ours in thought, word, and deed that we've ever committed, he doesn't reject us. And that's good news because it is his rejection or acceptance that only ultimately and eternally matters. And if we're accepted and loved and received by him, the one with whom it ultimately matters, what does it mean that, that the rejection of others doesn't hurt? It does. It hurts. So we still need him as our friend and high priest who, that we can run to, who listens to us and sympathizes with us, one that we can run to with that pain. It still hurts. But if we are fully accepted by him and in the courts of heaven, then we don't need to be devastated by the rejection of others. It, it, when, we're, when we're confident in his acceptance, the rejection of others may still hurt, but it doesn't need to ruin us. It doesn't need to, to keep us up at night tortured by rehearsing in our minds over and over what so-and-so may think or what others have said about us because the one place, the one person with whom it ultimately matters says, I will never leave you or forsake you. Though your friends and family reject you, I will take you in. I will always accept you. You are mine and I am yours. Haven't I shown you? Haven't I proved it? To you, haven't I fully secured it for you on my cross? And we go, oh yeah, you certainly have. <sighs> we breathe a, a real sigh of relief. And in this way, Jesus' rejection calms us. It gives us an enduring peace and rest that the rejection of others, other, the rejection of others cannot take away from us. This can, this can seem like a strange passage, passage to us, and it is strange. You may even wonder when you first read it, why is this in the Bible? Why would Mark include this? This is at least partly why. To caution us, to comfort us, to calm us, to remind us. As we move into life this upcoming week and the mission and ministry of Jesus this upcoming week and into all the relational challenges we'll face this week, that we can face them all with joy in our hearts and steel in our spines and courage in our bellies because Jesus was rejected like us and he was rejected for us. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you that it is through ordinary, imperfect sermons that you work to comfort and encourage and challenge and grow your people. And so we pray that you would take these, these humble, meager elements and that you would multiply them to feed and nourish your people this morning and this week so that they might be strengthened for the journey ahead. And Lord, we're also reminded 
that Jesus is our bread, that he is our nourishment as we come to the Lord's Supper. So we pray that you would open our eyes to discern his presence here. Open our hearts to receive the joy and assurance that this meal gives us of Christ's work on the cross for us and of his constant presence with us. May that comfort us, may that assure us, may that strengthen us as we move into the Lord's table this time. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.